This is Chris Brooks. Thank you for listening to this edition of Equip. Be sure and subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. For more information, visit our website, equipradio.org. Chris Brooks here, and I want to thank you for listening to this edition of Equip. Did you know that we are funded by the generosity of listeners just like you? Can you help us? Partner with the ministry of Equip by calling 888-644-4144 or on equipradio.org. Well, hey there, friends. Welcome to another exciting edition of Equip with Chris Brooks. I am so thrilled that you've joined me today. Can you do me a favor? Strap on your seatbelt. We're going to navigate through the contours of culture, as always, with the lens of the biblical worldview on. But before we do that, let me remind you, this is the day that the Lord has made. He has given it as a gift so that you and I can rejoice and be glad in it. So let's do just that. Let's follow the words of the Apostle Paul. Let's rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. And with that, I welcome you into what will be a very educational and informative edition of Equip. You know, we're in a pretty historic year. Every year that we have elections are important. When your elections include the highest office in all the land, as this year does, It is a watershed moment. Presidential elections are always historic. They shape a generation. Every president, through their policies and through their personal behavior, shapes uh, the way not only uh, the future of America will unfold, but in many ways the way that the rest of the world will see our nation. And there are many issues in this election that should be shaping our minds and our hearts as Christians. So throughout this year, we thought it'd be good to have a series of interviews that are specifically focused on the issues that we think will shape the election of 2024 so that you can, as a Christian, walk into the ballot box with your mind shaped by the Word of God. Now, you all all, all often probably have heard uh, someone say, don't leave your Bible outside of the ballot box. And that's true. What does that mean practically? I think practically what that means is that we should do the hard research that goes along with the major issues of our day. Everything from economics to education to foreign affairs. And today, we're going to talk about what it means to think as a Christian about life, about the issue of abortion. The issue of abortion has been a hotly contested issue for decades, for 50-plus years to be exact, in our country since the passing of Roe v. Wade. Now, there are certain days that will forever mark the historical landscape of our country. Uh, Such is the case uh, for uh, June 24th, Uh, 2022. It was then when um, the Supreme Court decided that it would overturn Roe v. Wade, and it overturned Roe v. Wade on June 24th, uh, 2022, in essence, making it now a state-by-state issue. So you probably have seen in your state the volume of this discussion going up, Certainly those who are pro-abortion have gotten uh, more vocal. And I think we who are uh, committed to the sanctity of human life need to make sure that our argument and defense for why life matters in the womb 
We need to make sure our argument is airtight and that we know how to move from debate to dialogue and how to make a cogent argument for the sanctity of human life. And when it comes to making a cogent argument for the sanctity of human life, I can't think of anyone better to guide us through that process than Scott Klusendorf. Scott Klusendorf is the president of Life Training Institute, where he has been training pro-life advocates to persuasively defend their views. He is uh, probably the most respected uh, pro-life philosopher and apologist in our country. He's debated uh, anyone who's willing to, really, and uh, has uh, proven that the case for life can be made philosophically, scientifically, and yes, it can be made based off of our faith in Jesus Christ as well. Uh, Scott is the author of The Case for Life, now updated to its second edition, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Scott, how are you, brother? I'm doing well, Chris. Always a pleasure to join you for a chat. Well, it is good, and obviously we got a lot to chat about. The updated edition, talk about what caused you to say, uh, man, we need to do a second edition besides the publisher (laughs) pressuring you. Yeah, well, before I get to that, Chris, I need you to promise me something. If I ever make noise that I'm going to update an existing book, I want you to shoot me (laughs) even though I'm pro-life. And here's why. When you update an existing book, it is far more difficult than writing a new one from scratch because you have to puzzle piece old and new together, and it's a job. But I'm glad I did it. And the reason I did it was this. In a post-Roe world, The ground has changed for pro-life advocates, and we need to know how to navigate that post-Roe world. And so I set about to achieve six objectives, help pro-lifers clarify the debate in a post-Roe world, help them understand the worldview assumptions that people bring to the table. That was the second objective. Oftentimes, we're talking to people on abortion, and we're thinking, what planet did they just step off of? off of. Well, chances are there's a worldview talking to you there. And if you don't know what that worldview is, you'll talk right past the person. Then the third thing I wanted to do is acquaint the reader with a survey of the major thinkers on this issue, principally those on the other side of the issue. People like Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, David Boone, and Kate Greasley, Jubilini Minerva, and people like that. How can we know what the contours of their arguments are and begin formulating a persuasive response. And then the fourth thing I wanted to do is handle the street-level objections that we're now hearing in light of a post-Roe v. Wade culture. And then finally, it was important to me to help Christians be prepared to give pro-life presentations. Now, right away, I can see some of your listeners going, wait a minute, I'm not a public speaker. Don't even go there. I'd rather be shot than do a public speech. But you know what? The question we have to ask ourselves, Chris, is this. Are any of the reasons I would give for not speaking up on this issue worth the price of children's lives that might have been saved had I been courageous enough to open my mouth? So I give readers a plan for giving a persuasive pro-life talk. I tell them how to get in front of 500 students in their community, how you do that, how you work through schools, how you work through church youth groups or whatever to get access to 500 students in their community. So it's a it's a it's a scholarly book, but a practical book too. Yeah, I love it. And uh, for those who had the first edition, I would just tell you that this updated edition is worth 
adding to your library, worth you securing as well. Don't assume that, man, I got the first edition, so I think I'm all set. No, all that new content that Scott just talked about and so much more is included in this book. And we'll we'll try to spend most of our time today on the street level, but I'm so grateful that you added all of those other uh, areas of focus, in particular the worldview area. I want to get to that in just a moment. But you know, Scott, this generation has been called by some sociologists the justice generation. There seems to be on every front the fight for justice. But I have said often, and so have many others, that um, the foundational right, you cannot argue for any other human right until you establish the right to be human. In other words, all other justice issues fall secondary to the right to be born. If we cannot protect life in the womb, it is logically inconsistent to say then we can argue for educational justice or economic justice issues or whatever your justice issue is, It all starts with the right to be born, the right to life. Now, I want to start with the basic syllogism. That word syllogism really is a simple word. I know it sounds complex, but it just means that there are a couple of uh, logical premises that lead to a conclusion. So what is the basic logic behind being pro-life, Scott? Well, I'm really glad you started there, Chris, because if pro-lifers don't start with a formal presentation of their argument, people will change the subject on us and lead us down a billion different bunny trails that have nothing to do with the point at hand. So by stating our syllogism up front, we can keep the main thing the main thing. And here it is. Here's our pro-life argument. Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. Conclusion, therefore, abortion is wrong. In other words, we are making a formal statement of what we're arguing. Now, Chris, it could be possible that our argument is wrong, but our critics need to show it's wrong. It doesn't do any good to change the subject and say something like, well, you're a man. Well, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. How does that have anything to do with the argument I just presented? Or our critic may say, well, you just hate women and you're religiously motivated. Again, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. How does that refute the syllogism I just laid out? And by keeping the focus on the argument, we can keep the main thing the main thing instead of running down all these irrelevant rabbit trails. And you can say that argument humbly. You can say that argument with compassion, and I hope that you will. But what you've presented in many ways is a strong, logically consistent case. Now, if you're going to poke holes into that, it seems like there's uh, just a couple of ways you could do that. You can say that the premises don't hold that somehow those those right. premises don't hold. You, you could also argue, it seems to me, Scott, that somehow you're defining things wrong or that you're misusing yeah. the terms. Is that right? Yeah, you could argue that the argument that you present equivocates, meaning it uses terms in an unclear way. But again, our critics need to show that. And one of the things yes. I do in the book when I say, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. I quote abortion choice philosophers, 
activists and those who perform abortions who agree with me that it does that. Yes. So I'm not yes. relying on pro-life sources there. I'm actually relying on hostile witnesses to make my case. All right. Now, we uh, obviously can't get into the rest of our discussion without talking about the SLED acronym. It's been so helpful to me, so helpful to many others. Let's use that argument to defend that life is life in the womb. Well, keep in mind, we use the SLED acronym not to argue that the unborn are human. We use the science of embryology to do that, because the question, what is the unborn, is an empirical question about what kind of living thing is the unborn. We use the SLED acronym to answer the philosophical question, and that is, do the unborn have value? Are their lives intrinsically valuable? And what the SLED acronym allows us to do is show that there's no essential difference between you, the embryo, Chris, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you at that earlier stage of development. There are differences yes. between you, the embryo, and you, the adult. Nobody disputes that. But really, the question is not, are there differences? The question is, do the differences matter such that we can say it's okay to kill you then, but not now? And Stephen Schwartz at the University of Rhode Island developed this acronym, S-L-E-D, we call it SLED, to show that these differences don't matter. And if you'll excuse me modifying his acronym just a little bit while giving him credit for being the originator of it, here's what that SLED acronym states. There's a difference of size. There's a difference of level of development. There's your L in the acronym. There's a difference of environment, meaning where you're located, and a difference of degree of dependency. There's your D. So you think of the four differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. None of them are good reasons for saying you could be killed then but not now. So just to look at them very briefly, size, there's your S in that SLUT acronym. You were smaller as an embryo, but since when, as a matter of principle, does body size determine value? Men are generally larger than women. Does that mean they deserve more fundamental rights than women simply because men tend to be larger? I mean, Shaquille O'Neal is seven foot two. He's a foot taller than most of your listeners. Does he have a greater right to life than all of us because he's bigger? For that matter, you're taller than me. Do you have a greater right to life than me simply because you're bigger? Body size doesn't equal a good principle for saying some people can be set aside to be killed while others can't be. The next letter is level of development. There's your L. Uh, yes, you were less developed as an embryo. And you know what our answer should be when our critics say this, when they say, well, that embryo isn't even developed yet, doesn't even have a brain yet. We should say, so why do I have to be developed not to be killed? And how developed do I have to be not to be killed? Make our Absolutely. critics defend their own claims. And what we tend to do as pro-life Christians is assume the burden of proof when it's the other guy making the claim. He's the one claiming there's a whole set of human beings we can set aside to be killed that are non-persons, and another group over here called persons we can't kill. But he never tells us why these traits he's arbitrarily picked out as decisive are decisive in the first place. Why is self-awareness the thing that gives us value and a right to life and not having a belly button that points out rather than in? Our critics need to argue for that, and they almost never do. So you think about level of development. People say, well, that embryo isn't self-aware, or it's not viable, or it can't feel pain. All right, all of that may be true. But you got to argue why those traits matter in the first place. It's not enough to yes. just make an assertion. 
And then let's the do let's do this. Let's do this. So we we uh, are, are through the S and the L. We'll pick up the E and the yep. D right after this break. Then I want to get into Scott some of the basic worldview assumptions that yep. those uh, neighbors, coworkers, family, friends, loved ones who are pro-abortion make and how we can respond to objections. So great to have Scott Klusendorf with us. To find out more about the Case for Life Second Edition at our website, equipradio.org. We'll be right back. Knowing the Bible is essential for a vibrant life in Christ. I want to equip you to live each day grounded in God's Word. That's why I've chosen the book Memorizing Scripture by Glennon Marshall as our impact gift this month. Discover memorization techniques that work for you and learn how to truly meditate on God's Word every day. This book can be yours with a gift of any amount. Simply call 888-644-4144 or visit us at equipradio.org. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. Scott Klusendorf, my guest, talking about second edition of his book, The Case for Life. I think it should be a required reading, really, uh, in, in all of our schools. But certainly, if you are a Christian wanting to understand the logical basis for the pro-life position and how we can respond to objections. Scott, you were walking through the SLED acronym and this is something, again, we use to defend why the uh, embryo life is vi- valuable and worth defending, even while in the womb. You've gone through the S, which stands for size, the L, which is level of development. Now you're on the E, environment. Yep. This has to do with our location. And the principle here is where we are does not determine what we are. When you moved from your car to the studio where you're now uh, broadcasting, Chris, you changed location, but you didn't stop being you. I'm going to just arbitrarily guess that you made a journey of at least least 70 feet. And the, the thing I'd like to point out is if a journey of 70 feet didn't change you from one kind of thing to another, how does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non human, non valuable thing we can kill to valuable human being we can't? And the answer is, if you weren't already human and valuable, changing your locale didn't change that. Finally, degree of dependency. Yes, you depended on your mother for survival. Again, our answer should be, why does that matter? How dependent do I have to be before you can say it's okay to kill me? Or to put it a different way, how independent do I have to be to have a right to life? Well, think about this. Conjoined twins often share each other's bodily systems. They share each other's circulatory systems. They share each other's organs. We don't slit their throats because they can't live independent of each other. We provide them the best care we can. Dependency is not a good reason for intentional killing. Well, you you did a great job, as always, in laying that out. And again, friends, I'm hoping that as you're listening to this conversation, you walk away saying, I can make that argument. I can have this discussion. The whole motivation, Scott, of uh, of our conversation is to help people to understand yes. you don't have to be Scott Klusendorf to have this conversation. I, I've been having this conversation for 
uh, two plus decades now based off of the things that I've heard you uh, in particular uh, share and train. And I and I'll tell you, I'm nobody special. Any of us can do uh, can have this conversation. Let's just go to the worldview portion of your book, which I love. If you had to pick one premise, a worldview premise that pro-abortionists have at the, as the foundation of their their illogical way of thinking, what would you say? I would say when it comes to cosmology, philosophical naturalism, the belief that the universe came from nothing and was caused by nothing. And if you hold that worldview, nothing has intrinsic value, whatever its stage of development. And it's, and it's important that Christians realize this. You're as a Christian talking to a stranger, and you're talking about how the unborn child in the womb has intrinsic value. It's made in the image of God, and therefore it has certain purposes it should fulfill and that should be recognized. You're talking to a philosophical naturalist who believes that the physical world is all there is and that it all came about by blind random chance. There is no such thing as intrinsic value. There's no such thing as objective human nature. Everything is just an accident of a blind watchmaker. Well, you need to understand that worldview if you're going to engage that secular person, or maybe you'll engage somebody who's bought into the postmodern worldview that says, even if there is objective truth in the universe, we can never know it because we're all all trapped behind our own sense perceptions. Well, that person is going to believe that if a mother ascribes value to her child through language, then that child has value. But if she doesn't, there is no value to that child. There's nothing objective in the nature of the child that commends itself to us to protect on the postmodern worldview. Or if you have a woke or critical theory worldview, you believe that truth is a matter of standpoint, that objective reason and evidence are actually tools of oppression, and that what really matters is the standpoint of the oppressed person. Only oppressed persons have the appropriate standpoint to determine right from wrong, things that are true versus things that are not. And therefore, they're going to dismiss your arguments based on your standpoint. Are you an oppressor or are you an oppressed person? And if you've been deemed to be an oppressor, they won't even listen to you. You're just canceled. And you need to know that going into these discussions in a post-Roe world. Well, I think both play into our hand, quite honestly. Uh, wokeism or the uh, oppressed oppressor kind of framework, as well as philosophical naturalism. And I say that because uh, even the philosophical naturalists who will say there is no God, therefore there is no intrinsic value, uh, I have not met the person who does not feel that about themselves that they don't have rights that should be protected and not violated. And uh, my wife, who has uh, been probably as passionate about this and articulate about this as anybody I know, will often uh, say to the person, um, well, well, certainly uh, I'm glad that your rights are protected and that your right to be born and to live uh, was protected and preserved. And I think that sometimes that logical fallacy is not exposed and we need to expose that as it pertains to the oppressed oppressor framework. 
who's more oppressed than the child in the womb in this scenario? Exactly. And this leads to a major assumption critics of the pro-life view employ that we need to call out. Unless you assume the unborn aren't human, the mother is oppressing her own offspring when she has an abortion. She's imposing her worldview structure, her idea of the good life on her child who she exploits so she can benefit from the child not being there. That is an example, as you point out, of someone functioning as an oppressor. The only way they can get around this is if they assume, they never argue, they just assume the unborn aren't human, and therefore they only see one possible oppressed person, that being the mother, who's being oppressed by male hierarchy or patriarchy against women. When in reality, if the unborn are human, you're right, the unborn are the, the, the big victims in all of this. Yeah, and I think it's important for us to be able to point uh, point out these things. And again, in many ways, we find ourselves often on the defense. Just talk about, you've already alluded to it, Scott, how important it is uh, that we uh, call those who are arguing for the termination of innocent human life to defend their position. Yes. And by the way, I think that's the great way to go. You mentioned the need to be charitable and and reasonable, and I could not agree more. Uh, I say to people, listen, I want to get at the truth. I am committed to the Socratic quest for truth. If my argument's a bad one, I want to fix it and make it more in line with reality. But it doesn't help me if you just call me names and say I'm stupid or religious or mean, I hate women. That doesn't help me make my argument better. I need you to engage my actual argument. It also doesn't help if you simply assume the unborn aren't human. You need to argue for that. I could be wrong that the unborn are human, and I'm open to evidence that will show that. But I need you to argue for it. When you argue for choice, privacy, or trusting women, or how it's wrong to force one's morality, all of those arguments assume the unborn aren't human. Would anybody argue for choice and who decides if we were talking about killing toddlers? or teenagers. Now, maybe with teenagers, some of your listeners might go, wait a minute, we should reconsider that. But I think you get my point that unless you assume the unborn aren't human, appeals to killing people based on choice, privacy, or trusting people don't fly. It only works when you make that assumption. We're going to get into the headlines with Scott Klusendorf after this break. Obviously, like me, many of you have been reading the news. There's a lot of hard cases out there. And we'll also take up the question, should men have the right to talk about this at all anyway? What about Christians imposing their faith on others? Talk about this and so much more with Scott Klusendorf after this break. Next up on Equip. Hey there, friends. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. So grateful that you've listened in. You know, every day our mission is to equip you to more effectively live, share, and defend your faith, to take on the tough issues of our cultural, relevant, and biblical answers, and to make sure you know how to give an answer that allows us to think critically and live compassionately. If uh, Equip is a blessing to you, we would ask that you would consider supporting our ministry today. And as you do, just know on the other side of your gift, lives are being changed and, uh, and, and hearts and minds are being trained 
to understand, to know the gospel, and to share it forever and for eternity. You can call the number 888-644-4144. That's 888-644-4144. Or if it's easier, go to equipradio.org. Now, while you're there at our website today, pick up your copy of The Case for Life. As we get ready to go through an election year, don't be one of those citizens who shows up at the ballot box and says, for yet another election, I didn't do the research, I didn't do the reading, didn't learn about the issues. It's incumbent upon us in this type of political uh, economy that we would know the issues. We have freedoms, but with freedom comes responsibility. And our responsibility in a democratic republic like ours is to make sure that we're doing the research so we can be an informed electorate. So please make sure you are doing the research. And I would argue that as you do the research, it becomes very clear that we need to vote pro-life. Now, let's talk about that, Scott, before we go further into objections. This is an election year. And uh, I, I certainly wouldn't ask you to advise on candidates, but I would ask you to give, at least in your mind, the balance of how we, what type of weight we should put on the political process versus these types of individual relational conversations that you're training us for, because I don't put all my eggs in the political basket, if you will. Uh, I try to balance that in a relational basket. So talk a little bit about how you work through that. Well, first of all, the first principle to recognize is that our Christian worldview uh, applies to all of life, not just some of it. We don't want to say, you know, my Christianity applies everywhere but this little box over here called politics. No, the Christian worldview informs all of reality, and as Christians, we should be working to see that Christian worldview applied across the board. So what I always do when it comes to politics is say, first of all, that every issue gets politicized. So people say, I don't want to get involved with abortion because it's political. Well, slavery was political. Did that give us an excuse to sit it out? No. Segregation was a political issue. Did that mean we could be silent on that issue? No. Spousal abuse became politicized. Could we sit it out? No. So just because something becomes politicized doesn't mean we're absolved of our responsibility to try to limit evil and promote the good insofar as possible. So my rule for politics is this. I'm always going to act, whether that's voting, donating to campaigns, volunteering, whatever. I want to act in such a way that I'm limiting evil and promoting the good insofar as possible, given the political realities confronting me. That's my number one rule. My second rule is to recognize that there are no good candidates that are perfect. Uh, Every election is going to involve two flawed candidates. I think of the last election. We had two candidates with very gross moral failures. One was a crude talking dude that uh, couldn't keep his tweets under wrap. The other was a lying guy who made up claims about his own resume and lied about what his future or, or former accomplishments were and had other character flaws. We had two candidates with character flaws. So the choice in front of me was, given both have flawed character, what do we do with policies? The choice was a candidate with flawed character and flawed policies, and the other choice was 
flawed character with some good policies. So, again, I'm always going to vote to limit evil and promote the good insofar as possible. And what you're, what you're basically affirming is the reality of living in a fallen world. And I think, yes. and this is why uh, I come back to, Scott, that the relational part of this has to counterbalance. I kind of look at it. Yeah. Uh, I, got a, I got a good friend, Rob Reno, who often talks about the Great Commission being like a bicycle with two pedals. You need global missions, yeah. but you also need to win your kids in the home. Both have to work. Yes. You can't win a race with one pedal. Well, I think the pro-life right. uh, uh, cause is the same way. Yes, you need the political pedal. Don't look at that as the as the whole uh, kid and caboodle. You need the other pedal right. of relational skills because when I'm talking to a young woman who's high-risk pregnancy or I'm talking to a young man who is in a relationship and they look up and they say, well, man, what do we do with this child right now? I need to be able to have the cogent conversation with them. If you don't mind, because of time, I want to get into some of the objections that we are sure. hearing. Okay. Now, one of the things that seems to show up in newspapers again and again and again are quote unquote hard cases. Now, these hard cases may range from uh, a child that's going to be born with some type of condition or deformity, chromosomal condition that may even have a high probability of uh, a short life. It may be mm -hmm. that argument or it may be the argument of rape or incest. Uh, these are, are certainly uh, stories that pull at our heartstrings. But why, does the, why do these stories not change the syllogism that we started with? Well, when you state them specifically as a justification for intentionally killing an innocent human being, it clears up the moral ambiguity. For example, soldiers that are mortally wounded on the battlefield are going to die, but we don't slit their throats and dismember them because they're going to live shorter rather than longer. And the moral principle we need to ask here is, since when does it follow that because some people will live longer than others, those that live longer get to intentionally kill those who will live shorter? That's a silly moral premise. So once you expose it as that, it takes away the moral fog, so to speak. On the issue of rape, here's the big question. We all agree that a woman who's been sexually assaulted has suffered something terrible, and we ought to love and support her in every way we can. The question we need to ask is this, given we agree that that woman has suffered, and given we agree that it may be true that the child reminds her of a painful event, how should a civil society treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? Is it okay to intentionally kill them so we can feel better? Suppose, Chris, I had a two-year-old here with me in my office who, uh, whose mother was raped, and every time she looks at the child, she remembers what the father of the child did to her. Suppose this mother said to me, would you kill my two-year-old to remove the painful memory from me? Well, obviously, everybody listening would say, no, you can't do that. Well, my reply is, why not? And the answer would be, well, he's a human being, to which I would reply, ah, if the unborn are human, should they be intentionally killed to relieve us of painful memories any more than we'd kill a two-year-old? Again, if the unborn are human, and we already argued they were, the issue is not rape. The issue is not hardship. The issue is what is the unborn. That's the issue we need to focus on.
And you're not denying, again, the hardness of these realities. No. Uh, but what no. you're doing is being able to help us to think clearly as we process through. And what many have done, I think, successfully is to be able to show how the addition of trauma to trauma only deepens trauma. So if we yeah, think that somehow... Go right ahead. Yeah, you're right, right about ahead. yeah, you're right about that, Chris. You're right about that, but I would say the only concern I have is that's more of a subjective argument. Somebody else may say the abortion isn't traumatic for me. Therefore, it's not adding anything traumatic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I have to agree that it is, but uh Yeah, we well, and this is where level. Yeah, and this is where as a pastor, and that's my uh professional uh guild if you will, I'm going to bring yep. to the table uh, the cases that I've seen again and again and again yes. and again, and not just me, but so many counselors across this country as well, uh, to think yeah. that you can have an abortion and that be have no emotional, psychological, or mental impact is is a fallacy as well. But let's move on really quickly before we go to break to just talk about the whole argument of imposing faith. You brought it up earlier. Let's come back to it. It's a straw man argument, but yet one that's often used and uh, repeat it. Mm-hmm. Christians are simply trying to impose their faith on the world. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, we're not imposing our view. We're proposing our views and hope that our fellow citizens will agree with them. And by the way, that's how a constitutional republic like ours is supposed to function. So what are our critics saying? That Christians, unlike everybody else, don't get to bring their views to the public square and argue for them? How tolerant is that? I mean, that's just awful thinking, but that's what our critics are proposing, really. But secondly, I would point out that they're trying to dismiss our pro-life argument rather than refute it. They're trying to say, oh, that's just an article of faith. That's not going to work. The argument we presented earlier is either valid or invalid, sound or unsound, you can't dismiss it by calling it a name religious. You need to do the hard work of refuting it. And what I find this to be is a lazy dodge of the pro-life argument rather than a robust refutation of it. I think that uh, you and I would agree that as Christians, we not only need to be able to rebuff that argument, but it should hopefully encourage us to continue to be all the more vocal. You are 100% right. We live in a nation in which it is our responsibility to be able to make strong, clear, moral arguments, and everyone is doing it. So we are not given the right to opt out of that process. This is why, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, it's because I think it is incumbent upon all of us to understand that every law that's passed has a moral proposition behind it. I don't care if it's a seatbelt law or a speeding law or an appropriate age for consuming alcohol or an appropriate age for sexual consent or voting. All of these have some type of moral premise or premises that support the logic behind why someone would propose it. And so if that's true in every other area, it is true as well in this discussion. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about this with our good friend Scott Klusendorf. But I want to take this final break because these breaks are strategically placed to give you an opportunity. Take a breath, pause, 
and get your copy of The Case for Life. We're covering a lot of ground, but the book does so much more. It really is. It's called a second edition, but I think you can treat it almost like a totally new volume. So even if you have The Case for Life, get this volume, The Case for Life, second edition, equipping Christians to engage the culture. Scott Klusendorf at his best. Go to equipradio.org. That's equipradio.org. We'll be right back. Here on Equip, it's our goal to help listeners like you to understand and apply biblical truth to the issues we encounter in our culture, our community, and our home. But we need your help. Will you join our family of equippers by making an ongoing monthly donation to Equip? When you do, you'll have exclusive access to regular encouragement from me, as well as our Equipper webinars and other special offers. Become an Equipper today. Call 888-644-4144 or visit EquipRadio.org. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. Scott Klusendorf is my guest. We only have a few minutes left, Scott, and I do want to pray for you before we let you go today. But there's three groups that uh, you wrote uh, to that I'm really grateful you included in the second volume. Number one, to pastors. They have a really powerful voice. So with about 30 seconds, what do you want to say to pastors through this book? Pastors, there are four things you need to do to be biblical on abortion. Number one, you need to preach, teach, and counsel a biblical view of human value, that human beings are valuable because they're made in the image of God, not because of a function they perform. Secondly, you want to preach, teach, and counsel that abortion is a sin. It represents the shedding of innocent blood in Scripture. Thirdly, you need to equip your people to engage the surrounding culture that's unchurched with a persuasive pro-life argument. And finally, we need to minister to those men and women wounded by abortion with the power of the gospel and the cross as an instrument of healing. Secondly, I think uh, one of the most powerful voices in this whole discussion are uh, post-abortive women. Uh, What do you want this book to speak to their heart, men and women? I want Yeah, I want them to know that the solution for post-abortion guilt is not found within them. It's not, you know, people say, I can't forgive myself for having an abortion. That's right. You can't because your sin is against God. You need to look in faith to the God who justifies sinners in virtue of his own son's righteousness and atonement. That's where we look for healing. And in the book, I cash that out in detail. Finally, uh, I am so grateful that you have um, spoken to pro-lifers who maybe have compromised on this. Maybe they haven't had a a whole pro-life view. What do you want to say to them? Well, I want pro-lifers to know that our primary focus needs to be the child in the womb. We don't need to take on every cause under the sun to be legitimate. We're not compromised if we say we're going to focus on those most at risk. But we are compromised if we take the position we only want to, in principle, protect some children and not all of those in the womb. So we got to be careful that we are focused but yet not compromised. Scott, you don't often talk about the personal price you've paid, your family has paid, for your outspokenness. But this road has, uh, yeah, it's come with uh, God's grace for sure, but certainly 
has uh, not been easy uh, by any stretch of the imagination. How can we best pray for you, brother? Well, you can pray that, number one, we get favor with gatekeepers that control access to audiences that we need to reach. Number two, pray for myself and my team that the Lord protects us against discouragement when things politically don't go the way we hope they go. And let's face it, we're in dark times right now. We're 0 for 8 since Roe v. Wade was overturned when it comes to the public voting on this issue. We feel that. That hurts deeply. And then when we see our churches being silent on the issue, that stings too. So pray that the Lord guards us against discouragement and gives us clear thoughts to continue to be faithful ambassadors for him. We'll do just that. And uh, obviously, we're going we're gonna to pray that this book get into uh, more hands than you ever hoped, dreamed, or imagined. I wish Amen. there was a way for me to hand deliver it to every family and every door in America. I can't do that. But uh, having you on today was my attempt at making sure that the world knows that we don't have to stand voiceless uh, against the opposition to life of our day. I think the argument's on our side. I'm convinced more and more uh, that the science is on our side. Philosophy yep. is on our side, and God is on yes. our side. And so we have an obligation. We have a mandate. And uh, to that end, uh, I encourage everyone, get a copy of the book and to lift your voice. It may feel like you're a small voice. That's all right. It is the collective voice of all of us together, not just the Scott Klusendorf of the world. But uh, men and women, post-abortive men and women, pastors, young people, I'm telling you, this is a great hour for college students, for high schoolers. Yep. This is a great, great time. So let's, uh, let's pray that America will be not only a pro-life country, but that we'll see and raise a pro-life generation. Let's pray for Scott. Father, we thank you for Scott, for his team. We pray for all of them at uh, Life Training Institute. Lord, we pray for the two things my brother asked for, for gatekeepers to open doors that no man can shut, Lord, that you would allow uh, not only this book, but even more importantly, uh, these ideas to be planted in the hearts of men and women broad and wide. Secondly, we pray against discouragement. You tell us not to become weary in well-doing. I pray that Scott would not become weary in well-doing, that he would be encouraged to see the progress that's been made in the hearts and minds of many, and that he and his team would be reminded of the many lives that exist today that would not have existed if, uh, if they were not faithful. So towards that end, Lord, help him and the rest of us to be faithful until all have heard, until Christ returns. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. Brother, Thank you, brother. always a joy. Always a joy to have you on. Thanks for joining us on Equip today. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you. Friends, I want to encourage you, get a copy of The Case for Life. As we think through these things, I know the temptation of our hearts is to overly politicize this, to put it into partisan uh, categories, to uh, dismiss it, to say, well, who am I to be able to speak? Listen, if we don't stand up for the pre-born, who will stand up for them? If we don't lift our voices, then the blood is on our hands. And that is the case today. Our great issue of our time is to protect life. And if we're going to argue for any other human right, 
doesn't it start with the right to be human? I encourage you to get a copy of The Case for Life. Go to our website, equipradio.org. While you're there, support the program. Until we're together again next time, as always, remember Equip with Chris Brooks is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Hey there, friends. Chris Brooks here. Have you noticed that if you know that pain is only temporary, it's much easier to bear? As Christians, we're facing some of the biggest cultural challenges in our modern time. I want you to join me as we delve into the book of Revelation and get a glimpse at God's glorious promise for what lies ahead. Don't miss Equip. Listen live weekdays at 1 Eastern, noon Central on the Moody Radio app or equipradio.org.